It's good to see you. It's always a joy to be able to share from God's Word. As we uh, are continuing today, we're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 6, and uh, we're continuing on through just Jesus, um, unpacking the Gospel of Mark week by week as we uh, go through this book. And last week, Pastor Chris uh, taught us that Jesus is the greater Moses who brings us rest in the wilderness. And this week, we are finishing up chapter 6 and covering a good chunk of chapter 7, where we will see that Jesus heals. The section of scripture we're looking at opens up with Jesus performing physical healings, but by the end we will see that there is a greater healing that needs to take place in all of us. This is a sobering passage, but in the depth of its seriousness, I hope that you will see hope. I hope that as we look at difficult truths, as we look at the reality and the seriousness of our sin, you will see that we have a great healer and a great Savior in Jesus Christ, that this message would bring you great hope. But I don't know about you, I need to be daily reminded of the hope that I have. Every morning I wake up and if it's almost like I'm going through this, this wrestling inside where I, I know what I believe, but I don't feel what I believe, so I have to remind myself of what I believe, what God's Word actually teaches us. And so this world is filled with constant reminders that our hope can't be put in anything else besides Jesus. And so if you're here today and you feel heavy, my hope is, is that this message doesn't add more heaviness, is that the burden of this text can easily be lifted through the greatest hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And I wanted to just touch on, I love Garrett's teaching moment because it reminds all of us that we can rejoice in Jesus as we face tremendous trials. You know, the, one of the most difficult things about preparing a message is you have no idea what all of the people have go, gone through this week. You can't even fathom all of the pains and all of the joys and all of the whatever you've gone through, um, but we can rejoice in the goodness of God despite all of these challenges. So I hope as we unpack this reality that you will see that because we are sinners, because we are messed up, that we should not be driven to despair by that, but we should be driven to hope in Jesus. And so one of the ways that I constantly remind myself of truth when I am driven to despair is catechisms. Before I lose you, before your eyes glaze over, and before you get too concerned, we're not going deep dive on the joys of catechisms, but I would love to talk to you about that after. Um, I think they are extremely helpful, whether it's Westminster Catechism or Heidelberg. And the one reason I say that is because they are based in the scriptures. It's a simple, almost elementary task of you ask a question and you get an answer. And so we've, you've participated in this in, in other times as well. If you've ever sung the song, Is He Worthy?, that is a catechism. Is he worthy? He is. Um, if you go and you sing all of these other songs, but the one thing I wanted to share from you today, because it's relevant to the world that we live in and the text that we'll be covering, is from the Heidelberg Catechism. And so the question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all of the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. And the second question is, what do we need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sins are. Second, 
how I am delivered from all of my sins and misery. And third, how thankful to God I am for such deliverance. So if you're like me, those things are helpful to me because they're rooted in the scriptures. I need to be constantly reminded that I have hope, that Jesus hasn't forgot about me, and that he died for me, and that sacrifice is real in this moment. Uh, But before we jump into the passage today, let's pray one more time. So Lord, we come to your word, and we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would rip off the hard shell that is on our hearts, and that we would walk away with an understanding of who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, would you speak through me in a way that pushes me aside and makes your word the main point? God, I ask that you would just give us a sense of calm as all of us have come from a week of a lot of stuff that none of us can even fathom at this moment. And so, God, give us peace as we study your word. Amen. The first section we'll look at is Mark chapter 6, verses 53 through 56. When they had crossed over, they came to a land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many that as touched it were made well. So the first point of the message today is Jesus heals the sick. See, Jesus is at a point in his ministry where he has gained a significant following and fame. He can't go anywhere without being recognized. And in the moment that he is recognized, there is a frenzy that happens. No matter where he goes, whether it's out into the wilderness or if it's in a shoreline or a town or a city or a marketplace, people are running all over and they're desperate to encounter Jesus. They have heard stories, there have been rumors spread throughout the city, and so once they get their chance, they can't help but run to him. They have never seen or heard of anyone like him. They have never seen this kind of authority or power or more likely compassion and mercy and grace. And so as all of this continues to press on, they start to understand the truth that there is ultimately no one like Jesus. And so as the boat lands on the shore and they start to get out of the boat, we can, we can see the picture. People immediately are coming to him. Word is spreading and people are running all over. A lot of times when we read through the scriptures, it's important for us to actually try to visualize what is going on. The craziness that must have overtaken this city as people are running from house to house proclaiming that he's here, he's here, the one we've heard about is here, and they're running around and they they don't see him yet as the Savior, but they know that he is this great healer. They've heard the news of Jesus, the one who can make all things well. And so they begin to bring all of the sick to Jesus and word has spread of this miraculous healing and people desperately wanted to be healed. People who were left to be left in this state where they never had any hope anymore. They were so desperate to have new hope. And so they're carrying them to Jesus. And if you stop and think of what this must have looked like, just like a brother bursts through the door and just like picks up his brother and he's like, he's here, let's go. You're going to get healed today. And they're bringing them to the center parts of the city that all of a sudden everybody is filled with hope. These people who otherwise are bedridden and laying there and just have given up on a lot of things now finally have the hope 
They go to the marketplace where everyone would have gone to get their food and goods, the most public place of the city, because they had heard of this woman, the one we heard about in Mark chapter 5, the one who had bled for 12 years and there was no doctor who could ever heal her, the one who had given up hope, but the one who just touched Jesus' garment and in that moment was made completely well. We see as it goes on that their faith is rewarded because all it took was one touch. No doctor could ever heal them. No medicine, no, no crazy idea that everybody had. It was a simple touch of Jesus. This power, Jesus walking through, and I imagine it like a processional. He walks through and everybody reaches out, and the second they touch him, the thing that affected them their whole life is gone. Do we really understand Jesus? Do we know the power that he has? People who had no hope in an instant were made well. People whose whole lives were ruined by their illnesses in an instant were made well. Families that were bankrupt and and destroyed because they couldn't make any money in an instant were changed. And so as we go through this, we don't know all of the different ailments that were healed this day, but we do know that they were not able to withstand Jesus. We do know that no matter whether it was crippling pain, they didn't have legs that worked, they didn't have arms that worked, in a moment the power of Jesus healed them. And so I think a scripture that fits well to tie this text to the text we're covering in chapter 7 comes from Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus calls Matthew to become a disciple. And there's this scene that happens in verse 10, and we'll read it. It says, And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Jesus has come to heal those who are sick. All of the people in the villages, the cities, and the countrysides that are needing to be healed And they had tried everything besides Jesus. They had gone to whoever they could go to to maybe get some sort of relief. But they came to Jesus in that moment. Their sickness was immediately healed. The great physician extended mercy to those who needed mercy, people who knew that they were broken, people who knew that something wasn't right in them and that they desperately wanted to be made well. And so today we're going to learn that Jesus heals the sick but that he has come to heal sickness that is much greater than a broken leg or much greater than a uh, not working lung. It's a sickness that consumes all of us, a sickness that can't be seen. And so point two comes from Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Our sickness can't always be seen. So the scene changes in verse 1 of chapter 7. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? but eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, 
as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. There's a lot to unpack here. Throughout Jesus' ministry, there's miracles, teachings, healings, and, and so much more, and there's this great reality that comes where people are hearing and following Jesus. They had never heard teaching like this before. They had never seen authority. They had never seen mercy and grace. And almost always throughout the Gospels we see there's a movement growing and the Pharisees are grumbling. The Pharisees show up and they have some kind of charge that they have to give to Jesus. They start to feel threatened. And so, like clockwork, they show up because they're starting to lose power. They're starting to lose influence. There's people who are starting to find hope and they don't fall under the control of them anymore. They're not only losing influence with the people they hated, but most likely the people that they tried to control regularly. See, the Pharisees, who are the religious elite, multiple times throughout the Gospels try to discredit Jesus, try to make him out to be crazy, try to make him out to be a heretic, try to make him out to be false. Most of their actions, they're done publicly. They're not just coming to Jesus' place and saying, hey, Jesus, I just wanted to talk to you. I think you're in error. They do it publicly to try to shame him and to gain and sway people to come back to them. But in this passage, they attack the disciples. They go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands like all of the elders before us? Why don't they wash their hands properly? The Pharisees, you'll notice as you read through the Gospels, they always want to emphasize the exterior. They always want to bring attention to what can be seen or what can be heard. Whether you're ill well, maybe that's a sin. Whether your hands are not clean, they want to go through and try to point out all of the things that can be seen to point against you. They bring this charge to Jesus, and Jesus responds in a harsh way. I know a lot of times we want to always picture Jesus as soft and gentle, but there's one thing that Jesus gets very serious about, and that's truth. Jesus sees that they are trying to lead people astray, and he says to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. See, Jesus is quoting Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13 to them. And as the religious elite, they would know what this passage is. They're the ones who have devoted their lives to studying the word. And now Jesus is using the Old Testament scriptures to point out to them that they are in error. He's pointing out to them the truth, that they're too blind to see themselves. He's rebuking the Pharisees by saying, what you are doing right now is simply lip service. You don't actually love God. Your heart isn't actually for God. You're just trying to make much of yourself. You're more concerned with what people are doing on the outside than anything that has to do with God, who you say you're trying to get them to follow. They may have fooled a lot of people because of their perceived holiness. They may have fooled a lot of people because they wore the right clothes and they washed the right 
washed their hands properly and they did all of the right things, but they didn't fool Jesus. Jesus can see the sickness that's inside of them. Jesus can see the sickness of their hearts. And he goes on in verse 9 through 13 to share a real example of how the Pharisees have been encouraging people to actually reject the teachings and commandments of God. He uses the scripture to expose their falsehood. And just to take a step aside from the message, I think this is a good teaching point for us, is that when we are rooted in the scriptures, we can call out and correct false teaching. But because we know the truth of God's word. See, Jesus isn't going to them with just pure emotionalism. He's going to them with the truth. And so if we're not careful when we seek to correct each other, and we live in a culture that is very quick to correct each other, we can correct each other with a tradition or a feeling instead of a scripture. And so Jesus is pointing out to them scriptures. And so we have to commit today that as a church, we're going to be a church that studies the Bible. We're going to study the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And when God does call us to lovingly correct people, which might not be as often as you think, we are pointing them back to the truth. We are pointing them back to the scripture, not our tradition, not our truth, but the truth, the word. We're pointing them to the thing that God has given us, the authority that he has given us, not our own thing. And so we need to know the word of God so that when the word is presented to us, when we receive correction, that we can humbly admit when we are wrong. We can turn from our sins. We can trust in Jesus. But now back to the passage. Jesus is presenting Exodus to them really the Ten Commandments. He's wanting them to be reminded of the well-known commandments that God has given them. And the one that he singles out is, honor your father and mother. Do not revile them. See, these commandments, if we're honest, are not easy to follow. Is that if we read through the Old Testament, we can see that we are going to fall short of all of these commandments. That ultimately, we aren't going to be able to follow up to them. But instead of repenting of their falling short, instead of repenting of the times where they they fall short of that. They try to walk in obedience, things like that. They go and they create a tradition to make a way around it. We actually can't follow the commandment of God, but if we can do something that will make it look like we follow it, if we could come up with a way that would make people still think that we are holy and perfect. See, Jesus is referring to a teaching that arose during this time where adult children were able to absolve themselves from any responsibility over their parents. They didn't have to take care of them anymore. And this is probably a whole other conversation, but I think there's something to be seen here. See, we go in and we see the way that they did this was ultimately, instead of seeing their parents in need and taking care of them, they go and say, all of our possessions and money are Corbin. That means given to God. They would tell their parents who are in need, who who probably couldn't take care of themselves, who are, who are ailing, they said, no, ultimately I can't help you because everything I have has been given to God. And initially we can see this as a very pious thing, right? We hear stories of great monks and priests throughout history who sell all of their possessions. They move into a mountain and all they do is study the scriptures and pray all day. They live a simple, possessionless lifestyle in a pursuit of holy living. But this isn't what's taking place here. See, they would declare Corbin to remove their obligation and hold on to their resources. It'd be like saying, okay, well, I'll give it to him later, but I can't give it to you because it's for God. See, they would go back and what they could do is they could use the money for whatever they like and whenever they're done doing that, they could once again declare their money as Corbin. It's like a super sketchy shell company, right? They can just funnel money into it and say, no, this is, 
this is for God. And then when, it, when they need it for themselves, they pull it out. And then people come back and they say, hey, I thought that was Corbin. And they're like, actually, it is again. It's Corbin. I don't need to take care of my mom and dad. I don't need to be there to do this for them. And so they can go back to this excuse and say, well, now I don't need to follow this commandment. We've created a way around the actual teachings. And Jesus comes here. He goes, he goes thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. See, the Pharisees and those who followed them could walk around as seemingly holy and righteous people. They can walk around and say, I've devoted everything that I ever had, every possession and all of my livelihood to God. And they could declare loudly their gifts and their prayers. They wash themselves clean. They follow all of the laws. They add laws so they can follow more. They've, they are the people who are better than you. Okay, we all know these people. You just walk in the room and you just know immediately you're better than me. But these religious elite who are under the impression that they are close to God are so deceived. Jesus wants them to desperately see that they fall short of God's standard. And initially we can look at Jesus' correction as mean and harsh and, and wicked. But in reality, he loves them enough to tell them the truth. He loves them enough to say, you are blinded by your religion. You don't actually understand the God that you say you follow after. Jesus rebukes their hypocrisy and false teachings publicly to declare to them that they think that they're pleasing God, but ultimately they do not please God. Ultimately, they're just living a life that pleases themselves. They're living in violation to the word of God. The Pharisees are just as sick as the people at the end of chapter 6. But the scary reality is that they're much more sick is that we can have broken legs and we can have body parts that don't work and we can all struggle with health conditions, but the sickness inside of them is much more serious. They don't believe they need any healing. They don't even know that they're sick. See, they look at the disciples' hands and they say, look at this, this is the problem. They want to declare them unclean, but they don't realize that the problem is inside. They don't realize that what is wrong with them can't be washed. What is wrong with them can't be bought. What is wrong with them is inside of themselves, and there's nothing that they can do about it. The problem is their heart. They can wash all day, but there is a cancer inside of them that is eating them alive. A cancer that they are too blind to see, and despite all of their words, despite all of their perceived sacrifice, there is a sickness that is consuming all of them from the inside. But before you and I fall into the trap of demonizing the Pharisee as terrible hypocrites, we must humbly say, you and me are terrible hypocrites. This last section of the passage that we will look at today reveals the harsh but necessary reality that sickness infects us all. There is something inside of us that is broken, that has been broken from the beginning of time, and there is nothing that we can do except trust Jesus. We might not sin like the Pharisee. We might not be as blatant. But there is something inside of us. We all have the same sickness. And so point three is, sickness infects all of us. Verse 14, it says, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? 
Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Sometimes I wonder when we look at that list if Jesus just knows our natural inclination to say, well, that's not me. So he just like keeps going. So he's just like, and coveting, and wickedness, and deceit. And the person's just sitting there waiting and then he says it and they're like, oh man. Like the, the point of it is, is that all of us are in this boat. All of our hearts have one of these things or multiple of these things. And so as we go in, he he calls them, he goes to teach them after his rebuke, and he he has the whole crowd with him at first. He wants them to understand that really nothing outside of a person that by eating it is going to defile them. But ultimately, it's what's already inside of you. He says these words, and the disciples go into a private house, and he explains the parable to them further. He goes, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Jesus is laying out the truth that it's not what you eat or what you drink. It's not the things that are outside of you. It doesn't matter how many times you wash your hands. It doesn't matter how many germs that you push out. The problem is your heart. And when we look at Jeremiah 17.9, it talks of the heart in this way. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, the problem is inside of us. It can't be expelled. But what is inside of our hearts? Jesus goes on to lay out all of those things. And so if the problem is inside of us, what can we do to make ourselves clean? If the issue is the heart and not the stomach, then what needs to happen? See, ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, there is something that infects all of us the sickness of sin, and it separates us from God and it puts us into a position where we can't draw near to him because ultimately there's something inside of us that we can't take care of us. See, John Piper talks of the seriousness of sin in this way. He says, sin is like a spiritual leprosy. It deadens your spiritual senses so that you rip your soul to shreds and you don't even feel it. See, this quote reminds us That sin is a sickness. It's more severe than any ailment or disability that we will ever face on this earth. And some of you will probably sit here and go, wow, Jim's really hammering this point that sin is bad. And the reason is, is because I want you to know how insidious it is. I want you to know that it will slowly destroy your lives and it will destroy everything you love and everyone you love. It is the great lie that tells you that the more you indulge in it, the more you will receive, but it leaves you bankrupt every single time. Every single time we give in to sin, we think it's going to help us, but it hurts us. It is the thing that draws us further away from the healer. It is the thing that draws us farther away from the one who loves us and desperately wants us to be with him. The vertical church, this is a serious and weighty thing. It can be overwhelming, but... Here's the good news. We don't have to be overwhelmed. Because there's only one way to be made well, and that's just Jesus. See, Jesus makes us well. Jesus heals us from our spiritual sickness, and only Jesus can heal our sinful heart. 
Only the promised one who came to make all things well, the great physician. See, no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, you can never change your heart. Only Jesus can change your heart. And so we read Jeremiah 17, 9, and we hear those harsh realities about the heart. But as we continue to read, you will get to see Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 through 31 through 34. And this passage is the promise of a new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The beautiful thing about Jeremiah 31 is that we get to live in that new covenant today. The one who writes on our hearts, writes on our hearts today. The one who forgives our iniquity and remembers our sin no more does that today. Jesus brought forth the new covenant in his blood when it was spilled. And the only way that the defiled are made clean is through faith in Jesus Christ. The only begotten son who died for the sins of the world. And three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. The Pharisees were convinced if they followed all of the rules and all of the new rules that they would be okay. They were convinced that if they, if they did it all right, then God would finally see them as good and see them as clean, but they were wrong. You can spend your whole life coming to church. You can spend your whole life doing all the things right, washing your hands, reading the Bible, sacrificing and sacrificing, but if you don't know Jesus, you have nothing. I just want you to see... And I pray that God would open your eyes to that truth. Don't fall for the trap of good deeds. Don't fall for the trap of just sacrificial work. If your heart is far from God, it won't matter anything that you do. None of us are righteous. This room is filled with broken, sinful people. And I say that as one of those people. We can't make ourselves clean. There's no amount of good deeds that will change our hearts. That's why David in Psalm 51 says, God, create in me a new heart. He realized how broken he was that he couldn't do it anymore. He said, God, you need to give me a new, clean heart. And the only way that we remain clean is by Jesus. It's through regular repentance and our trust in his saving work. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, the point is we have to see how bad the sickness is to know how much we need Jesus. And so you may be wondering, how do we apply this into our daily lives? How does Jim get up there and say, you're all hopelessly sinful? Repent. I believe the best way to apply this is through daily repentance and faithful pursuit of Jesus. Reminding yourself of the truth. So when the enemy wants to tell you lies, when he wants to draw you to sin and say that this time it'll be different, this time sin is going to make you happy, you'll remember the great truth that you've devoted your life to. See, the Christian life is one that is dependent upon Christ. We can't make ourselves clean. No matter how long we follow Jesus, we will always fall short. 
whether you've followed Jesus for one year, five years, 70 years, you will always fall short and you still desperately need Jesus to make you clean. So we rest in our faithful Savior, the one who is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us any time that we turn from him. Repentance is the way that we are set free, the way that we are healed. So how do you apply this if you don't have a relationship with Jesus? I think the way that you do that is by trusting in Jesus today. I hope that you will see that there is a sickness inside of you that can't be healed. A sickness that is holding you back from the one who created you. A sickness that has separated you from the one who loves you and knit you together in your mother's womb and desperately desires you. And that if you would just recognize today that you are a sinner, that despite of all of your best efforts to make up for all those sins, if you would just trust in Jesus, repent of your sins and turn to him, your sickness can be healed. That you can be reunited with the God who loves you and knows you more than you know yourself. And so if, you, if you'd want to talk about that, any of our pastors would love to talk to you about how Jesus changed our life when he saved us.